called orbalisks by the local Nikto populace. One warrior recounted how he had been infested for nearly a full year before ridding himself of the creatures because they so disfigured him that he could not find a mate. This returns us to our earlier dilemma of how to define harmful and beneficial. Revisiting the previous discussion, we must now include capacity to find a mate in our discussions. Zana pulled her eyes back up to the top of the screen. One warrior recounted how he had been infested for nearly a full year before ridding himself of the creatures. In desperation, she typed in a new phrase, then hit search again. It is a fact generally assumed by most zoologists that orbalisks cannot be removed without killing the host. However, my research has revealed that an infested host can be cured, though the process is both dangerous and extremely complicated, as I will detail here. First, the host must be in excellent health. As one might expect, the very definition of excellent and even health must be expounded upon. She had found it. She had found it. Zana leapt to her feet, pumping a clenched fist in a quiet victory celebration, barely able to contain a fierce shout of triumph. And in her moment of elation, the spell, concealing her true identity, slipped. Zana quickly regained control, glancing to her left and right to see if anyone had noticed. Heart pounding, she slammed the personal data card Master Barra had given her into the terminal to copy over the Orbalisk article. Behind her, a voice said, Rain? What are you doing here? Daravit wandered along the wide aisle of the Jedi Archive's fourth hall, overwhelmed by the sheer volume of knowledge in the stacks. He had briefly tried looking for information on the native flora and fauna of Rusan, hoping to broaden his knowledge so he could better help those who came to him for aid. He was used to a simpler world, however, and found the technology of the archives daunting. An analysis droid had explained how to use the search and retrieval systems to find information in the stacks, but his brisk tutorial had left Daravid even more confused than before. Other scholars were there, and he could have approached one of them to ask for help. But as a man who valued his own privacy, he was loath to interrupt theirs. Ultimately, he had simply started to wander up and down the aisle, waiting for Johan to return. Daravid was beginning to regret his decision to come to Coruscant. He had let himself get swept up in the moment by the Jedi Knight, the thoughts of stopping another war with the Sith appealing to the romantic ideals that had first led him to Rusan as a teenager. But those were the dreams of a child. He was older and wiser now. The Jedi moved through a world that was not his own. The concerns of an entire galaxy weighed upon their shoulders. Their decisions affected trillions of lives. Daravid didn't want that kind of responsibility. Surrounded by the grandeur and glory of the Archives, all he wanted was to return to his simple hut in the forest. Unfortunately, that might no longer be an option. He was here now and Johan seemed determined to have him speak before the Jedi Council. To take his mind off his plight, he began to study the other scholars. They were all Jedi, Padawans and Masters, young and old, human and otherwise. He noticed an attractive young woman with long, dark hair staring intently at her viewscreen, chewing on her lip as she delved into some work of academia. There was something familiar about her, though Daravid was sure he had never met her before. 
Over the past decade, he hadn't met anyone except those few individuals who sought him out in his hut, and the woman certainly didn't look like she had come from the farms or villages of Rusan. He crept toward her, not wishing to interrupt her studies, but trying to figure out if he knew her. For several minutes, he watched her. She was obviously frustrated, unable to find what she was looking for in the data cards. Suddenly, she leapt up, clenching her fist victoriously, and Daravid felt a familiar presence wash over him. For the first ten years of his life, that presence had been at his side constantly. As children, they had shared a bond that went beyond being cousins. They were as close as brother and sister. And though the figure before him had black, not blonde hair, there was no doubt in Daravid's mind who she was. Rain? He called softly, so as not to startle her. What are you doing here? The woman spun to face him, her eyes wide. She stared at him blankly, unable to recognize the man she had last seen as a boy ten years before. Then her eyes dropped to the stump of his right hand, and her jaw fell agape. Tomcat? He nodded, then added, It's Daravit now, but sometimes I think I still like Tomcat better. You're a Jedi now? She said, confused by his presence in the archives. No, he answered quickly, unwilling to be mistaken for something he was not. I stayed on Rusan after... After this, he held up his stump. I became a healer. What are you doing here? I came to... He stopped mid-sentence, suddenly realizing the danger Rain was in. The danger he had brought upon her. Rain, we have to get out of here. The Jedi are looking for you. Tomcat, what are you talking about? A Jedi came to Rusan. I told him about you and Bane. That's why they brought me here. The young woman's eyes glowed with pure hatred and anger, and for a second Daravid thought she was going to kill him in the middle of the Jedi archives. How much do they know? She demanded. Tell me everything you told them. Rain, there isn't time, he protested. I'm just waiting here for them to come get me. They could be here any minute. You have to get out of here or they'll find you. She turned and punched a key on the terminal. A small data card popped out. She snatched it up and stuffed it beneath her clothes. Then she grabbed him by the wrist and dragged him back down the aisle toward the central rotunda. She moved as quickly as she could without drawing attention, her pace something between a brisk walk and a run. Daravit made no move to resist, though he did ask, Where are we going? Tython, she whispered. I have to warn my master. They reached the rotunda. But instead of turning down the first hall and heading toward the exit, she led him into the third hall. What are you doing, Rain? Darvid asked, his voice rising slightly. We have to get going! One of the other scholars, an older woman with coppery red hair sitting at a nearby terminal, turned to stare at them, her attention drawn by Darvid's exclamations. Quiet, Tomcat! Rain shushed him, nodding apologetically in the woman's direction. You're disturbing the other patrons. The old woman turned back to her viewscreen, dismissing them. Daravid's companion gave his arm a rough shake. I'm sorry, he whispered, just loud enough for her to hear. But you have to get out of here. Leave for Tython before they find you here. I don't know where Tython is, she snapped back through clenched teeth. We need to find a hyperspace route. 
Taking the Terminal 1 down from the red-haired old woman, Rain punched a series of buttons. A second later, the screen came to life with a list of reference numbers. Got it, she said, shoving Darvid into the seat by the Terminal's viewscreen. Wait here. She disappeared into the stacks, moving with the same half-walking, half-running stride. As Darvid waited for her to return, it occurred to him that his loyalties had suddenly shifted. He had been lured to Coruscant with the notion of helping the Jedi wipe out the Sith and prevent a war. But the abstract concept of widespread galactic suffering meant little when he had come face to face with his childhood friend. Now all he could think about was what would happen to Rain if she was caught, and he realized he was willing to do whatever it took to keep her safe. Less than a minute later, she returned and slapped a data card into the terminal. Leaning across Daravid, who was still seated in the chair, she tapped away at the controls until an image of a cloud-covered world appeared on the screen. I need to copy this, she said, pulling out the data card she had been using when he first saw her and jamming it into another slot on the terminal. Why not just take the original? Daravid asked. Sensors on the archive doors, she explained. Removing an original will set off alarms. The terminal beeped and the data card popped out, the copying complete. Xana stuffed it into her robes, then hauled Daravid up by his elbow. Let's go, before your friends show up. Not bothering to return the original back to the stacks, she half-led, half-pulled him away from the terminal. She whisked him to the rotunda, then down the main aisle of the first hall and out the exit, leaving the archives behind them. Chapter 20 I don't understand, Master Valentine, Johan said, casting his gaze from side to side as they made their way down the aisles of the Jedi Archives. I left him here less than an hour ago. He had expected to find Daravit sitting at a terminal in one of the four halls, or possibly examining the Bronzium busts in the rotunda. But when he brought Master Valentine to speak with the young man, Daravit had vanished. He's probably just lost somewhere in the stacks... Farfalla assured him. Johan signaled to a passing analysis droid. It turned and made its way toward them with quick, stiff-legged steps. May I be of assistance? I'm looking for someone. A young man. Beings of all species and ages visit the archives. I would be better able to provide assistance if you could provide a description, Master Jedi. He's missing his right hand. There was a soft whirr as the droid accessed its recent memory banks. I believe I recently saw the man you are looking for in the third hole, the droid offered, turning to lead them in that direction. Johan didn't bother to wait. He pushed past the droid in his haste. Farfalla followed closely at his heels. There were many people examining the data cards located in the third hall, but the healing hermit of Rusan was not among them. We've got to find him, Johan said to his master, then ran up and down the entire length of the hall peering into the side aisles to see if Daravit was hidden among the stacks. His disruptive antics drew the ire of several of the other scholars. Farfalla reached out and grabbed Johan as he ran past a second time, stopping him before he could make another lap of the hall. He's not here, Johan, he said. There was a loud clearing of the throat, and two men turned to see an older red-headed woman glaring at them. Master Valentine, she said, I respectfully remind you that the Archives is a place of contemplative research. 
Your young friend would be better served to resume his exercises out in the training yards. Our apologies, Master Kina, he whispered. But this is a matter of some urgency. We are looking for someone who has gone missing. It is easy to lose oneself in the wisdom of the archives, Kina replied. I myself often disappear for days at a time. Farfalla smiled politely at the jest. This is somewhat different. The analysis droid that had been helping them earlier toddled over toward them, having only just now caught up after they left it behind in their haste. Johan glanced at the droid, then back to Master Kina. We're looking for a young man, he told her. He's missing his right hand. Kina raised her eyebrows. I saw him, not thirty minutes ago. He was with a young woman. A woman? Farfalla asked in surprise. They seemed to know each other, the old Jedi informed them. They called each other by silly little nicknames. Tom, Cat, and Rain, if I remember correctly. Johan seized Farfalla's arm. Rain was his cousin. The one he met down in the caves. She's here! Do you know where they went, Master Kina? Farfalla asked. The old woman shook her head. They were using that terminal over there to look something up. Then they left. Farfalla turned to the droid. Is there any way we can find out which records they were viewing? I am sorry, Master Jedi. To protect the privacy of our scholars and to avoid compromising their research, the terminals do not store any data on which records they were used to explore. Your friends seem to be in quite a hurry, Kina offered. I doubt they even bothered to return the data disk to the stacks. It might still be plugged into the terminal. Johan rushed over to the screen. It was still logged on, under the name Nalia Adolu. As Kina had guessed, there was a data card loaded in. He pulled up the disk's index as Farfalla came and peered over his shoulder. Tython, the Jedi Master remarked, picking out the common theme among the thousands of articles and papers referenced by the index. Birthplace of the Jedi. That must be where they're going, Johan insisted. Bane must have gone into hiding in the deep core. He turned to Farfalla, clutching his master's arm in his urgency. You have to convince the Council to let us go after them. Farfalla's eyes were cold and hard. I doubt the Council will be in any great hurry to take action in this matter, he warned. But Master Valentine, Johan pleaded, only to have the other man cut him off with a sharp wave of his hand. The Council will not help you, Johan. Therefore... We must go to Tython ourselves. Johan's eyes went wide in surprise. I swore a vow to General Hoth, Farfalla explained, his voice taking on the hard tone of military command he had not used since the disbanding of the Army of Light. I promised I would not rest until the Sith had been cleansed from the galaxy. I still intend to honor that vow. Go find Masters Raskta and Waror, he added. They also served with Hoth on Rusan. They will join us in our cause. Tell them we leave within the hour. The first thing Xana did after the Loranda had escaped Coruscant's orbit and made the jump to hyperspace was wash the black dye out of her hair. She'd engaged and locked the autopilot before heading off to the staterooms in the aft decks leaving Tomcat to wander freely about the vessel. 
When she emerged, still drying her restored blonde locks with a towel, he was calmly waiting for her. He had settled in on one of the long padded couches in the Loranda sitting lounge, reclining comfortably along its length. Judging by the drink in his hand, he had also located the collection of ales Hedden had kept on board. Still dressed in the ragtag robes of a hermit, he cut an image that was slightly comical. Even with the dye job gone, you still don't look anything like what I thought you'd grow up as, he told her. It wasn't just her hair that Xana had changed. She'd also replaced the drab Jedi robes with her more familiar and comfortable all-black garb. Being left-handed, she'd hung her lightsaber on that same hip, and the valuable data card with the article on the Orbalisks had been secured in a cargo pocket sewn into her trousers along the outside of her right thigh. This is the real me, she assured him. She had often assumed character roles and disguises in her missions for Darth Bane, and she was usually comfortable in the act of deception. Yet for some reason she'd found the guise of Nalia repellent, and she'd been eager, almost desperate, to rid herself of all remnants of the Padawan's facade. So, am I your prisoner? He asked, as she sat down on the seat across from him. I don't think prisoners are allowed to drink tarol while they lounge on couches, she noted, tossing the towel onto the cushions beside her. Then why did you bring me along? Tomcat asked, sitting up and leaning forward, suddenly serious and intent. I couldn't leave you behind. You were going to expose me and my master to the Jedi Council. You were a threat to the Sith. Do you really believe you're a Sith, Rain? Don't call me that. She said angrily. Rain is dead. She died on Rusan. My name's Xana now. I guess Tomcat died on Rusan too. He agreed somberly, slowly swirling the glass in his hand. You should probably call me Daravit now. But you never answered my question. Do you really believe you're a Sith? I am Darth Xana, apprentice of Darth Bane, Dark Lord of the Sith. She said, making no effort to hide the fierce pride she felt in the titles. And one day, I will destroy my master and choose an apprentice of my own, continuing the legacy of the dark side. I don't believe that, Daravid told her, obviously unimpressed with her declaration. I know you, Xana. You're not evil. Evil is a word used by the ignorant and the weak, she snapped. The dark side is about survival. It's about unleashing your inner power. It glorifies the strength of the individual. That's not you either, Daravid countered. Followers of the dark side must be brutal and ruthless. You care about others, Xana. You don't know me, she sneered at him. I've killed more people than you can possibly imagine. I've killed people too. Bug died because of me. Darvid said softly, referencing the third cousin who had come with them to Rusan. But killing people doesn't make someone into a Sith, he said in a louder voice. Don't lecture me on the ways of my order, Xana warned, getting to her feet and snatching up the towel off the cushion beside him. What could you possibly know that I had not already learned? I may not know the dark side, Darvid admitted, looking up at her. But I know you. I know what you're capable of. Xana angrily threw the towel across the room, flinging it through the open door into the stateroom. 
She stepped forward and grabbed Darovit's right forearm, spilling his drink. Then she twisted his arm up so his stump was right before his face. Maybe you forgot who gave you this, she reminded him. Darovit made no move to break free of her grasp, though she clutched his arm so hard that her nails were digging into his flesh. I'm not a fool, Xana, he said calmly. Your master would have killed me in that cave. I know you did this to save my life. She released her grip, tossing Darovit's arm back down into his lap in disgust. She turned her back on him and marched up the corridor toward the cockpit. The young man tossed the empty glass onto the couch and scrambled to his feet to follow. You risked yourself to save me, Xana. He called out after her as she neared the cockpit. You did it because you cared about me. Wheeling around, Xana reached out with the force and yanked Darivet to the floor. He landed with a grunt face down at her feet. Things have changed since then, she said, then spun away from him again and threw herself angrily into the pilot's seat. Darovit got up slowly and moved to stand behind her chair, hovering over her right shoulder. If you don't care about me anymore, then why did you bring me with you? He asked quietly. I already told you, she said stiffly, staring straight ahead. You would have exposed us. I couldn't leave you behind. You could have killed me. <laughs> Zana barked out a laugh, turning her head and craning her neck to glare at him contemptuously. Just strike you down with the power of the dark side in the middle of the Jedi Temple? Do you think the Sith are fools? We're not in the Jedi Temple anymore, Darvid said softly. Why don't you kill me now? Zana snapped her head forward again so she wouldn't have to look at him. You're a healer. We can use you. There are plenty of healers in the galaxy, her cousin pressed. Ones who can't expose you to the Jedi. I don't have time to find anyone else. You were in the right place at the right time, she insisted. You got lucky. That's not true, Xana. How do you think I recognized you after all these years? There's a bond between us. There always has been, ever since we were little. Xana didn't say anything, but merely shifted in her seat. Do you remember when we were kids? Everyone thought I was so strong in the Force, and nobody believed you had any power at all. She didn't answer, but she did remember. As children, Daravit was the one who could levitate objects and bat away fruit tossed into the air with a stick while blindfolded. Her own powers hadn't manifested until she found herself alone on Rusan. I didn't realize it then, Xana, but the power I showed, all those tricks I did, that wasn't me. It was you! Even as kids, you knew how badly I wanted to be a Jedi, and you wanted to help me. So you channeled your own power through me, allowing me to do all those things. That's not how I remember it, she said coldly. You didn't do it on purpose, Darovit explained. The bond we shared was so strong, and you cared about me so much that your subconscious took over. That's the stupidest theory I've ever heard, Xana snorted, still staring straight ahead. Is it? Think about it, Xana. After we lost you on Rusan, it was like my powers disappeared. That's why I failed as a Jedi and as a Sith. My power is weak. That's why I survived the Thought Bomb when all the Sith and Jedi around me were destroyed by its power. 
It only affected those with a strong affinity for the Force. And what about you? You have so much power. Why do you think it took so long to show itself? You were always channeling it through me. He paused. You won't become the Dark Lord of the Sith, Xana. He added, It's just not in your nature. Sooner or later you'll realize that. Shut up, she said flatly, still keeping her eyes riveted on the controls in front of her. If you say one more word, I'll take your other hand. Daravit didn't reply, but his fingers instinctively went to his stump. I brought you along for one reason and one reason only, she continued, her voice still completely devoid of emotion. My master is infested with parasites called orbalisks, and you are going to heal him. But I don't know how. Daravit protested, forgetting her warnings to remain silent. Xana reached back with the force, wrapping it around his windpipe, and slowly she began to squeeze. Daravit fell to his knees, his hands flying up to his throat as his oxygen was cut off. There's a data terminal in the back, Xana said, ignoring his choking coughs. Use it to go over everything in the article I took from the archives. She pulled the card from the pocket on her thigh and tossed it down in front of her suffocating cousin. He was rolling back and forth on the floor now, his hands clawing at his throat. His face had turned a bright red, and his eyes were starting to bulge from his sockets. If you can't find a way to help my master by the time we get to Tython, she warned, he will kill you. She released Daravit from the force choke, and he gasped and gulped down air in raw, ragged breaths. She turned to watch him with a cruel smile on her lips, making sure he knew she was enjoying his suffering. Eventually, he recovered enough to pick up the data card and head for the terminal in the back. Once he was gone, Xana got up from her chair and began to pace back and forth between the pilot's and co-pilot's seats. She knew Daravit was wrong. He had to be. She was confident in her commitment to the dark side, despite everything her cousin had said. But there was enough weight to some of his arguments to make her wonder what Bane would think about all this. If her master, like Daravit, believed her actions showed a lack of commitment to the ways of the Sith, things would go very badly for her when they reached Tython. Balea Darzu had been a Shi'ido in life, a changeling species whose members were capable of shifting their appearance so it was not surprising that the projection that served as the gatekeeper of her holocron similarly changed forms. At various times, she appeared to be Twi'lek, Iridonian, Syrian, or human, occasionally even switching between genders. The process of creating a holocron cannot be rushed, the gatekeeper explained. The adjustments to the Matrix must be made with precision and care. She was currently in the form she most often assumed that of a tall, human female with short brown hair. She appeared to be roughly 30 years of age, with a sly, almost crafty look to her features. In this guise, she was typically clad in a dark, form-fitting flight suit, dark boots, and a pale yellow vest that left her arms bare. She also wore yellow gloves, a short black sleeve over each elbow, and a red flight cap and belt. After his initial activation of the holocron's power, Bane had brought it up out of the inner sanctum and into a large common room on the main level that once served as a mess hall for Belia's living followers. 
Here, Bane had been exploring the holocron off and on for the past several days. He had proceeded carefully, still drained from his battle with the Technobeasts. The slow pace allowed him to recuperate his energies and rebuild his strength as he probed the crystal archives. Much of what he discovered focused on the rituals and practices of Sith alchemy, something he would explore in depth when he had more time. Other times he stumbled across Belia's own philosophical examinations of the Force, though in truth there was little there that Bane hadn't already discovered for himself. Only now had he finally found what he had truly been searching for. It can take weeks or even months, Balia's image explained, before the final stages of construction are completed. Her form flickered to be replaced by the image of a holocron shown in cutaway. The filaments and strands of the crystal matrix in the image began to shift and move, illustrating the adjustments the gatekeeper was talking about. Bane didn't bother paying close attention. He already knew how to fine-tune the matrix's internal structures. You said the adjustments can take months. How is that possible? Bane asked with a shake of his head. The cognitive network degrades too quickly. Belia's image flickered into view again. The cognitive network must be trapped within the capstone before you begin. Capstone? Bane asked, his nerves tingling with excitement. In all his research, he had never heard mention of a capstone before. An image of a holocron appeared once more though no longer in cutaway. The small black crystal built into the apex of the pyramid was flashing. The capstone is key to the process. Without it, the cognitive network will degrade before you complete your adjustments, and you will fail every time. Bane stared in wonder at the image. He had known that the dark crystal was an essential part of the holocron's construction. Yet he had believed its sole purpose was to channel the power of the symbols etched across the sides of the pyramid into the matrix. He never imagined it would serve another function as well. How do I trap the cognitive network inside the capstone? He asked, eager to learn the secret that had eluded him. You must invoke the rite of commencement. The projection shifted to show an incredibly elaborate and complicated Sith ritual one that went beyond anything Bane had mastered so far. With subtle pushes from the Force, he flipped through image after image after image, realizing it would take him many months of careful study to memorize the rite. Still, the secret was his. Satisfied, he shut the holocron down. It was time to leave Tython and return to Ambria. If all had gone well, his apprentice would be there waiting for him. He made his way outside where the mystic waited. But as he prepared to board his ship, he saw another vessel in the distance racing toward him. He reached out with the force and felt the presence of Xana inside. And one other. The Loranda came in to land 50 meters from where his own ship had touched down. Bane stood impassively, waiting for Xana to emerge. When she did, there was a young man with her. The Dark Lord could feel the force in him, though its presence was weak. When he saw that the man was missing his right hand, everything fell into place. We were supposed to meet at Umbria. He snarled at Xana. Why did you come here? And why did you bring him? I came to warn you, she answered quickly. The Jedi know you survived the Thought Bomb. Because of him, Bane said, nodding in the other man's direction. 
he was going to speak to the Jedi Council. Xana explained. If he vanished, they might dismiss the rumors that you still lived. Why didn't you just kill him? Bane asked, his tone ominous. He's a healer, was her immediate reply. He knows how to free you from the Orbalisks. Xana's answers came too quickly to suit Bane. It was as if she had already had this argument, likely rehearsing it in her head over and over in preparation for this meeting. Is this true? He demanded of the other man. I can't do it here, Daravid answered. I need supplies, special equipment. It's dangerous, but I think it can be done. Bane hesitated. Not because of the potential danger. He had known that any procedure to rid himself of his infestation would be fraught with risk. But now that he knew his failures with the Holocron were not linked to the Orbalisks feeding on his power, he wanted to reevaluate the decision to remove them. The sight of another ship appearing over his apprentice's shoulder, still too far in the distance to make out a model or affiliation, put an end to his deliberations. An instant later, he felt the unmistakable light side power of those on board. Xana must have felt it too. She turned and looked in that direction, then turned back to him with a worried grimace. Is something wrong? The young healer asked, noticing the exchange. What is it? We were followed, Xana muttered. The ship was coming in quickly, too fast for them to get into their own craft and take to the sky. If they tried, the other vessel would shoot them down before they took off. Inside the fortress, Bane ordered. Jedi have found us. Chapter 21 The Justice Crusader, Master Rask's ship, was easily the fastest vessel Johan had ever been on. A small personal attack cruiser, she required a crew of four. Fortunately for Johan, there were four others with him on board, all of them clothed in the simple brown robes that marked them as members of the Jedi Order. Master Rask'ta Lisu and Ichani sat at the controls of her ship. She had the alabaster skin, pure white hair, and silver eyes common to all her species. She was almost as tall as Johan, with the muscles and physique one would expect in a species that valued physical combat as the highest form of art and personal expression. Named in honor of the legendary Ichani warrior Raskta Feni, acclaimed by many to be the greatest duelist of her time, Master Raskta had spent her life honing her martial skills so that she could one day equal and even surpass her namesake. She had achieved the rare and prestigious rank of Jedi Weapons Master. Eschewing all other fields of study and forsaking the development of her other Force talents to focus exclusively on the lightsaber and combat, she had transformed herself into a living weapon. Now tasked with training apprentices in the forms of lightsaber combat, Raskta had been part of the campaign on Rusan. Wielding a blue-bladed lightsaber in each hand, and shunning any form of armor, she was a terrifying figure to behold on the battlefield. Johan vividly remembered her carving great swaths of destruction through the heart of the enemy ranks, leaving a litter of bodies in her wake. It was said that by the end of the war, as many Sith Lords had fallen under her twin blades as had been killed by the Thought Bomb. In the gunner's chair across from the pilot was Sero Zaj, the human male who had served as Raskta's Padawan on Rusan. A year older than Johan, Sarah had olive-brown skin and a single topknot of black hair. 
He was also the largest human Johan had ever encountered. Over two meters tall and 150 kilos of raw muscle, he could easily be mistaken for a hairless Wookiee rather than a man. Yet despite his mass, he was still quick enough to snatch a zest fly out of the air. Elevated to the rank of Jedi Knight seven years before, Saro had chosen to follow in his master's path, focusing on mastering a massive double-bladed lightsaber measuring almost three meters in length. Johan imagined there were few beings in the galaxy who could stand up under the ferocious assault of his weapon's blue blades. Handling the navigation in the back of the vessel was Master Walror, an Ithorian. His long flat neck curved forward and up to a head shaped like the letter T, with his large bulbous eyes on either end of the crossstroke. His odd appearance had led to his species being commonly called hammerheads by the ignorant and insensitive. Master Warror's surname could only be pronounced by beings possessing the two mouths and four throats unique to Ithorian anatomy. Johan had heard tales of Ithorian Jedi channeling the Force to transform their multiple voices into a devastating sonic weapon. Master Warror, however, was a healer by training, and his power lay in that direction. He had been one of General Hoth's advisors on Rusan, and a key to victory in many battles, even though he didn't even carry a lightsaber. The Ithorian's role was not to engage the enemy, but rather to provide support through both his healing abilities and the rare art of battle meditation. Although his talent was not strong enough to single-handedly alter the outcome of a large-scale conflict, in close quarters, Warror could draw upon the Force to give strength to the bodies, minds, and spirits of those around him, enhancing the skills and abilities of his allies. Located beside the navigator in the rear of the vessel, the fourth member of the crew, Master Farfalla, provided support for the pilot, gunner, and navigator. He called up astronav charts, engine readings, weapon status, scanner reports, and anything else the others needed to do their jobs. Johan was seated up front in the cockpit with Raskta and Sero, occupying the passenger's chair behind the pilot. Until they reached Tython, his only job was to stay out of everyone else's way. Using the long-abandoned hyperspace route indicated on the data card they discovered in the archives, the Justice Crusader had penetrated the deep core. Master Raskta had expressed her concern at the start of the voyage. According to current records, the hyperspace lanes they were traversing had been known to momentarily collapse without warning. A ship traveling anywhere along the hyperspace corridor during the nanosecond before it reformed would be lost forever. Combined with the other dangers of the deep core, including wandering black holes that would rip a vessel apart, even in hyperspace. The instability of the route had led to it falling into disuse and finally being forgotten for well over a thousand years. Walror had calculated the risk of a hyperspace collapse during their journey at just over 2%, more than high enough to make Johan breathe a sigh of relief when they emerged unscathed a few thousand kilometers away from the destination. Weapons primed and ready, Saro's voice told everyone over the intercom. Any friends we have to worry about? Nothing in orbit, Farfalla reported. Looks like we're clean. I'm taking us in, Raskta told them. See if you can find anything. Picking up an ion trail, Farfalla said as they neared the planet's atmosphere. Looks like we're right behind them. Locking on to the ion trail. Locked on. Even over the crackle of an intercom, Warror's deep voice resonated through the ship. Engaging autopilot. 
Raskta said. Let's see where this takes us. Saro, keep your trigger finger ready. The autopilot dropped them down into Tython's atmosphere, and for several seconds the only thing Johan could see through the cockpit viewport was a wall of gray cloud. When they broke free, their destination was immediately obvious. I think I know where we're headed, Saro mumbled. Below them was a flat, empty field, virtually devoid of life. A dark fortress was visible on the horizon, the only significant structure in sight. Picking up two small vessels on the ground, Farfalla told them as they drew nearer. Nobody outside, though. They were close enough now that Johan could make out two melted towers rising up on either side of the stronghold's front face. Reading life forms inside the building, Farfalla noted. Looks like... Three. Only three? Sarah mumbled, sounding disappointed. This might be too easy. Don't count on that, Farfalla warned him as Raskta brought the Justice Crusader in for a landing. Xana was trying to concentrate, gathering her mental energies for the coming battle. She was distracted, however, by her master's own preparations. Darth Bane was prowling back and forth like an angry rancor, his lightsaber already drawn. She could feel the dark side building inside him, fueled by his rage, his never-ending hatred of the Jedi, his resentment toward Daravid for exposing them, his anger at her for leading the Jedi here to Tython. At any moment, she expected to see the bloodlust of the Orbalisks unleashed, but Bane kept his fury in check, saving it for the coming battle. Her master had led them back inside the stronghold to a large open room with an exit at either end. A single door would have been easier to defend, but he was wary of getting trapped. If the Jedi cornered them, they would settle in for a long siege and wait for reinforcements to arrive. As the last two surviving Sith, Xana and her master did not have the same luxury, so it was important that they keep alternate escape routes open. The room was empty, completely devoid of any furniture. Based on that fact and its great size, 40 meters by 30, she guessed it had been built as some kind of practice arena or training center. In addition to the exits on either end, there was a small door on one of the side walls that led to a tiny dead-end room. It had probably served at one time as a storage closet for weapons, targets, and other implements used in drills or training. At Bane's instruction, she'd stashed the data card from the archives inside the closet, and her master had done the same with Balia Darzu's holocron. At her suggestion, Daravit was hiding in there too. He was unarmed, and he would be of no help to either side. Don't come out until the fighting's done, she'd warned him, drawing a sour, disapproving look from her master. He'll only get in the way, she'd explained as Daravit had closed himself in. Now there was nothing to do but wait for the enemy to arrive. Fortunately, or unfortunately, they didn't have to wait long. The doors on either end of the room burst open simultaneously, the Jedi splitting their numbers in two to better coordinate the attack. The first group, a female Ichani wielding a blue lightsaber in each hand, and the Jedi Master in garish clothes with a golden blade, charged straight for Bane. The other two, a lean, quick-looking Jedi armed with a green lightsaber and a gigantic mountain of a man spinning a massive blue, double-bladed weapon came at her. 
Susanna ignited her own double-bladed lightsaber and threw up a twirling wall of defense, though her weapon looked puny and insignificant, set against the blue monster brandished by the larger of her two opponents. Before they could engage her, she backpedaled toward one of the corners, stopping several meters from the intersection of the two walls. This allowed her to protect her flanks, but still left enough space for her to duck, dodge, and evade the weapons of her enemies. From the corner of her eye, she saw Bane take a completely different approach. Protected by his orbilisk armor, he charged forward to meet the two Jedi Masters confronting him, head on. And then, her enemies fell on her. It took only seconds for her to realize that the bigger man was by far the more dangerous opponent. In the time it took for the smaller man to strike at her twice with his green blade, she had batted aside half a dozen attacks from the other. There was a marked difference in the style and effectiveness of their blows as well. The skills of the Jedi with the green lightsaber were raw and basic. When he struck, it was with either strength or speed, but not both at the same time. His blade came in either high or low, but never altered its plane during the attack. In contrast, the big men attacked her from creative and unexpected angles, the massive blue blades changing course mid-thrust. Each offensive was a model of lethal efficiency, quick and powerful strikes and counter-strikes that kept an opponent guessing. Yet as long as Xana kept her blades spinning to hold this momentum, she was able to ward off both their attacks easily using whirling parries, in large part because the Jedi with the green lightsaber was inadvertently working at cross purposes to his partner. He was attempting to alternate his forays with those of the bigger man, expecting they would take turns pressing forward, then withdrawing, always keeping Xana on defense. But the incredible reach of the bigger man's weapon made it difficult for him to unleash a sustained volley without fear of injuring or even killing his companion when the other man moved in to join the fray. As a result, the bigger man constantly had to step back, pull up, or lay off his attacks. He was forced into an awkward rhythm of advance and retreat, his timing and strategy dictated as much by his ally as by his opponent. Xana noted all this from behind the impassable wall of her spinning twin blades, content to play a completely passive role in the encounter. Were it not for the big man's brilliance, she would have quickly switched to an aggressive sequence and easily dispatched the smaller man. But were it not for the smaller man's mediocrity, her defensive talents would have been pushed to the very limits by her more skilled opponent. The arrangement suited Xana just fine, allowing her to play them off against each other, she didn't need to kill them. She only needed to hold them at bay until Bane, protected by the invulnerable orbalisk shells, killed his two opponents and came to her aid. She waited until it was time for the smaller man to attack again, then gauged his painfully predictable incoming stroke. Knowing exactly where it would end by watching where it began, she was able to momentarily divert her attention from the combat to see how her master was doing. To her surprise, both of Bane's opponents were still standing, proof they were exceptionally skilled combatants. She also noticed that a fifth Jedi had entered the room, an Ithorian who stood apart from the battle, his eyes closed as if he was meditating. And then she turned her focus back to her own melee, just in time to avoid certain death. The glance in her master's direction had lasted only a fraction of a second, but in the brief interval of her distraction, the larger man had sprung forward, jabbing the tip of one of his blades toward her eye like a spear. 
Xana snapped her head to the side at the last possible instant, hearing the hiss as the blade sheared off a lock of her hair. The sudden movement threw off her timing and balance, and as her spinning lightsaber slapped away the blow she had earlier anticipated from the smaller man's green blade, it lost its centripetal momentum and faltered. In the split second it took to roll her wrists and start the intricate whirling patterns of her blades again, she was vulnerable. The big man sliced high at her head, forcing her to duck, then chopped in low at her feet on the backstroke, causing her to jump before she could properly set herself. She avoided the swipe, but landed clumsily on her feet. Another blow rained down on her. With her body out of position, she was forced to block its path rather than deflect it to the side. The power of the impact sent her reeling, and she fell to the floor. The man with the green lightsaber saved her. He leapt in to finish her off, blocking his companion from doing the same. Against his pedestrian assault, she was able to regain her feet and slide into the sequence of moves that were the foundation of her virtually impenetrable style. There was a brief instant when she saw an opening, but rather than choose to kill the man with the green lightsaber, she let him live, knowing he was a greater hindrance to his allies than he was to her. From across the room, one of the other Jedi called out, Johan! Saril! We need reinforcements! Go! The big man shouted. I can handle this one. And suddenly, the man with the green lightsaber was gone. The olive-skinned giant reared up to his full height. Xana realized he was even taller and more heavily muscled than Bane. The air sizzled as his long lightsaber carved an elaborate flourish around his body, then another above his head. He smiled down at her knowingly. Then he leapt forward and the real battle began. It had been many years since Farfalla had fought while empowered by Walror's battle meditation. He had forgotten how much quicker and stronger the Ithorian's amazing talent made him feel. The force flowed through him with greater power, filling him with its might. Yet even with their enhanced abilities, he wondered if they would survive the coming battle. As they burst into the room, a man, who could only have been Darth Bane, charged recklessly toward them. In any other instance, the move would have spelled a quick end to the encounter, as Raskta raced ahead of Farfalla to carve the Sith to pieces. Raskta's blue blades flickered too quickly for the eye to see, neutralizing her enemy's initial wild attack, then landing half a dozen lethal blows to his chest and abdomen. But instead of toppling, the big man kept coming never even breaking stride. He would have plowed straight into Raskta, trampling her under his heavy boots, had she not cartwheeled to the side at the last possible instant. Bane never stopped, his momentum carrying him straight toward Farfalla. The Jedi Master had a moment to register the strange armor coat of hard, shiny shells he wore beneath his clothes. Then he too leapt to the side to avoid being crushed, surviving only because his reflexes were heightened by Waror's power. Raskta was already back on her feet and flying through the air toward him. Bane spun and threw a wave of invisible dark side power at her. A weapons master was not skilled at defending against enemy force attacks. The impact of the wave would have plastered her against the wall and crushed her had Farfalla not thrown up a shield to protect the Ichani. Even so, her muscular body was plucked from the air and hurtled backward, though she twisted in turn so she landed on her feet. Farfalla saw the Sith Lord turn toward him, sensing the intervention that had saved Raskta's life.
Bane unleashed a barrage of Sith lightning, gathering and releasing his power at the speed of thought. The Jedi threw up a force barrier to shield himself, but the electricity tore right through it and arced toward him. Then suddenly, Rastah was there to save his life, repaying a debt that was only a few seconds old as she threw herself in front of him. Fueled by Waro's battle meditation, she switched styles seamlessly and her arms and blades became a blur as they carved figure eights in the air to catch and absorb the bolts of dark side energy. Their enemy fell upon them again, following up the lightning with pure aggression. Rasta rushed ahead of Farfalla to meet this second charge. She crouched low, viciously slashing at his thighs and calves, attempting to leave their opponent crawling legless on the floor. Her blades carved through his boots and sliced wide gashes in his pants, only to reveal more of the chitinous shells. Bane brought his lightsaber down at the Ichani, who crossed her blades into an X, attempting to block and trap her opponent's weapon at the point of intersection. But the Sith's move was only a feint meant to distract her. And at the last instant, he pulled his weapon back and swung an elbow around to catch her in the ribs. The contact lifted her off her feet and sent her sprawling. Then he was past her and bearing down on Farfalla. The Jedi Master dropped into an elegant defensive stance to meet the charge. The handle! Rasta gasped as she scrambled to her feet. The warning caused Farfalla to notice the hook-handled lightsaber of his enemy and the unusual grip it required. This would alter the nature of his attacks, causing them to come in from odd and unfamiliar angles. In the regimented and hyper-precise world of Jedi-Sith lightsaber duels, it transformed his style into something unique and unexpected. Valentine recognized, processed, and reacted to this information in a fraction of a second, allowing him to adjust his own weapon's course just enough to block a strike that otherwise would have slipped along the edge of his blade and taken his arm off at the elbow. Even so, the strength behind the attack tore Farfalla's golden blade from his grip, sending his lightsaber skittering across the floor. Unarmed and helpless before his enemy, he was saved by Rasta. Knowing that her lightsabers couldn't penetrate Bane's armor, she slid in from behind and scissor-kicked his legs out from under him. He toppled over backward, turning his fall into a roll that ended with him back on his feet. However, the distraction allowed Farfalla to look over and reach out with the Force, calling his weapon back into his hand. He spun back to the fight to see that the Ichani Weapons Master had taken the offensive, sending quick flicks of her blue blades toward Bane's unprotected face the only spot on his body seemingly not covered by the impenetrable shells. Remarkably, Bane was giving ground. Stay back, she shouted at Farfalla. You'll just get in the way. Farfalla did as he was told, gathering the energies of the light side to throw up another protective force barrier should Bane try to unleash his dark side powers against the Ichani. She seemed to be everywhere at once, in front of Bane, beside him, behind him, circling low, leaping to come in high, deflecting his blade with one of her own, then stabbing three quick times in succession at his eyes. The big man's head ducked and bobbed, twisting and turning to avoid her blows as he tried to mount a counteroffensive. Rasta's mastery of her blades was unparalleled. But even with her talents augmented by Warroar's battle meditation, she wasn't able to land a telling blow on such a small target through Bane's defenses. Still, the ferocity of her new strategy had turned the momentum in her favor. Or so Farfalla thought. Bane continued his retreat, circling away from Raskta's blades, then suddenly turned and ran straight toward 
the unarmed Ithorian, standing just inside the door of the room. Battle meditation required Master Walroar's complete focus. There was no chance for him to mount any type of defense. If Bane cut him down, the others would lose the only advantage that gave them any chance of surviving the encounter. Farfalla released the power he'd been gathering in a single, concentrated burst. Bane was suddenly encased in a shimmering stasis field of light side energy, freezing him where he stood. But his command of the dark side was too powerful for it to hold him for more than a split second. The shimmering field exploded into fragments as the Dark Lord broke free, though the momentary delay had allowed the Ichani to place herself between the Ithorian and the Sith. Raskta's blades hummed and sang as she engaged him again, determined to keep him from reaching Master Warroar at all costs. He's too strong, Farfalla realized, even as he ran to help her, both physically and in the power of the dark side. It's like trying to fight a force of nature. Johan! Saro! We need reinforcements! Johan turned his head at the sound of Farfalla's voice. Go! Sarah shouted at him. I can handle this one. The young Jedi looked over to the far side of the room and instantly recognized what was happening. Master Warroar was in danger. He had to be protected or his battle meditation and any hope of victory would be lost. He leapt across the room, using the force to propel him through the air so that he landed only a few meters from where Raskta was dueling Darth Bane, desperately trying to drive him back and away from where Master Warroar stood, but a meter or two behind her. He hesitated before attacking, noticing that the Sith Lord's skin was covered with a strange, crustaceous growth. Go for the face! Farfalla shouted, arriving on the scene and throwing himself into the battle as Johan did the same. Together, the three of them held the Sith Lord at bay. Farfalla on the left flank, Johan on the right, and Raskta in the center. Between blocks and parries, they cut and stabbed at his face, their combined efforts finally forcing their enemy into a defensive stance. The young Jedi marveled at the speed and savagery of Raskta's blades. And while Johan's own clumsy efforts had actually seemed to impede Saro when they fought side by side, Raskta appeared to thrive off his presence. When he went high, she went low. If he came from the left, she came from the right. It was partly a function of her choice of weapon. Individually, each of her lightsabers was more precise and accurate than Saro's giant double blades. But it was more than that. Her reactions were so fast, her combat instincts so pure, that she was able to sense and anticipate what he was going to do even as it happened, then use his attacks to her own advantage. On her opposite side, Farfalla struck with clean, elegant blows, his form perfect as he harried Bane's right flank. Yet though they were able to hold their ground, they couldn't drive him back or defeat him. They were at an impasse, none of their attacks able to connect with the one vulnerable part of Bane's anatomy. Then Johan caught a glimpse of white flesh peeking out from the seam between the Sith's armored gloves and the strange shells on his forearm. The gap was narrow, but it was large enough for a well-aimed blade to penetrate. He slashed at his new target. Amplified by Warroar's power, the force flowed through him and guided his blade home. The contact wasn't perfect. 
His lightsaber glanced off the edge of the armored shells so that he only made shallow contact with the skin beneath. Instead of severing the hand, he merely sliced deep enough to sever nerves and tendons. Bane bellowed in rage as his weapon slipped from his grasp, the wound leaving his fingers limp and powerless. But before Johan or any of the others had a chance to finish off their unarmed opponent, they were blown backward by an explosion of dark side energy, their enemy's power fueled by the sharp sudden pain of his wound. Lying on the ground ten meters away, Johan watched in helpless horror as the Dark Lord's lightsaber leapt from the floor and flew back into his hand. Amazingly, his fingers wrapped themselves around the hilt and reignited the Crimson Blade, his injuries somehow healing almost instantly. There was no longer anyone standing between Bane and the Ithorian. Like Johan, Farfalla and Rasta had both been thrown clear. The Sith Lord raised his blade to end Waror's life, and Johan thrust out with the Force. He knew he wasn't strong enough to penetrate Bane's defenses, but the big man wasn't his target. Instead, the powerful push struck Waror, throwing him into the corner as the lightsaber strike that would have cut him in two swished harmlessly through the air. Johan felt his strength and energy plummet. A wave of exhaustion and fatigue overwhelmed him. The beneficial effects of the battle meditation vanishing as Walror's concentration was broken. But the Jedi Master was still alive, and Farfalla and Rasta were back on their feet. If they could hold Bane off for just a few seconds, the Ithorian could resume his meditations and restore their advantage. Xana slid to the side, her spinning weapon redirecting the blade of her enemy away from her throat and harmlessly up over her shoulder. Its twin came in quickly from the other side at her hip, and she threw herself into a back handspring to avoid it, landing nimbly on her feet. Grimly, she realized that she'd never understood the true meaning of the term martial arts until now. The warrior assailing her had elevated the act of combat to its purest and highest form. He moved with the fluid grace of a dancer, his monstrous blade singing the deadly song of battle. He executed his moves with a perfect elegance born of obsession. Xana knew it left him vulnerable to other forms of attack, but he pressed her so relentlessly that she never had a chance to effectively gather her power. Had the Jedi enjoyed the same advantages Bane's Orbalisk armor provided, their encounter would have ended long ago. Bane could shrug off otherwise lethal blows, foregoing all sense of personal safety in a reckless assault of pure offense to overwhelm her defenses. In contrast, the man before her, massive though he was, would still die if her blades caught him. He had to guard against her counterattacks. His style, less aggressive, so he didn't leave himself vulnerable. Even though his technique was more refined than her master's, she'd been able to withstand his assault, so far. He came at her again, his blade changing direction so quickly in mid-stroke that it seemed to bend and curve. Xana repelled the assault with a furious defensive flurry, breathing hard. Her style was meant to prolong combat, exhausting her opponents as they tried to penetrate her defenses. But each time she clashed with the olive-skinned giant, she was the one forced to expend desperate, frantic energy. Slowly, he was wearing her down. It was more than just his talent and training. Xana sensed some type of greater power at work. The force flowed through him as if it was being channeled by another.
giving even greater strength to her opponent. Another exchange drove her backward. The man was cutting off the room, herding her tightly into the corner to limit her movement. He was taking away her agility, knowing she was no match for his strength, and there was nothing she could do about it. Taking another step back, she felt her heel butt up against the edge of the wall. There was nowhere left to go. The end was near. On the far side of the room, she heard Bane howl in rage, and she braced herself for a final stand she knew she couldn't survive. Her opponent spun the long, double-bladed lightsaber around his own body, gathering momentum for his next attack. And then suddenly, the power behind him, the force being channeled through him by another, was gone. Xana felt it disappear, snuffed out like a candle in a puff of wind. The big man hesitated, casting a quick glance over toward the others to see what had happened. Seizing the opportunity, Xana's fingers flickered in strange patterns as she unleashed her Sith sorcery at her foe. His eyes went wide and he stumbled away from her, his lightsaber swinging wildly at the air around him as he was beset on all sides by imaginary demons. Flailing in half-mad terror at the invisible monsters, he ignored Xana as she swooped in and ended his life with one long diagonal stroke across his muscular chest. As he fell to the ground, Xana turned her attention to Bane on the far side of the room. He was single-handedly battling three Jedi, slowly pushing them back toward where the Ithorian lay crumpled in a corner. Gathering the dark side around her, Xana created a concealing cloak to mask her power as she had done at the Jedi Temple. While she did so, she saw the Ithorian slowly rise to his feet and close his eyes in concentration. She felt the surge of light side energy rolling across the room, as did Bane's opponents. Suddenly invigorated, they backed her master up against the wall, concentrating their attacks on his face and the joints of his wrist where the orbalisks had left tiny gaps in his armor. Xana rushed to her master's aid, coming up silently behind the Jedi. Her presence hidden by her spell of concealment, they never sensed her coming. She struck the Ichani down first, thrusting her blade forward so that it pierced the Jedi's back and ran her through. The Ichani cried out and slumped forward, dropping at Xana's feet. The men on either side half turned toward her, momentarily forgetting the opponent directly in front of them. Bane took the opportunity to slice off the weapon hand of the man with the green lightsaber. He screamed and dropped to his knees, clutching his cauterized stump. The image pulled Xana's mind back to the cave on Rusan, where she'd taken her cousin's hand. With a shake of her head, she dispelled the memory. Her distraction had given the young Jedi a chance to roll clear of the battle. Xana hesitated, uncertain whether to finish him off or help her master against the man he was still battling. The question became moot a moment later when Bane swatted the Jedi's golden lightsaber aside with his orbalisk-encrusted left forearm, then removed his foe's head from his body with his lightsaber. In the corner, the Ithorian broke his meditative trance, sensing that his companions had fallen. But before he could act, Bane leapt through the air and landed in front of him, slashing all four of his throats simultaneously. The Ithorian crumpled to the ground, and Bane turned to finish off the one-handed Jedi. Xana felt the gathering dark side power of her master. But in the instant before he unleashed the storm of deadly purple lightning, the Ithorian reached up from the floor and clutched him by his ankle. A shimmering blue globe surrounded them both, 
as the mortally wounded Jedi released his own power in his final dying act. Instead of arcing across the room to destroy the one-armed Jedi, the lightning that flew from Bane's fingers reflected off the inside of the shimmering blue globe encasing him. The bolts ricocheted around wildly inside the globe, creating a storm of energy so intense that Xana had to shield her eyes and look away. She heard Bane scream, rising above the sharp crackle of electricity. And when she looked back, she saw the globe vanish and her master fall to the ground in a charred and smoking heap. She started to run to him, then saw that the sole surviving Jedi was crawling toward where his lightsaber had fallen on the ground, determined to fight on despite the loss of his hand. Her face, frozen in a mask of rage and hatred, she stepped forward and spun her lightsaber above her head. He looked at her with pleading eyes, but her only response was to bring her blade crashing down, ending his life. Chapter 22 When Xana first reached Bane's side, she was sure her master was dead. The lightning had reduced his clothes to ash, and his gloves and boots had melted away. The flesh of his face and hands was charred and burned, covered with blisters that oozed a runny yellow pus. Several of the parasites on his chest and stomach hadn't survived. Their brown shells turned black and brittle by the lightning's electrical charge. Wisps of still-smoldering smoke crept out from beneath their shells, bringing with it a sickly stench that made Xana's stomach churn. Then she saw Bane's chest rise and fall, his breath so shallow and faint she had almost missed them. He must have slipped into unconsciousness as his body went into shock from the unbearable pain. She paused, half expecting to see his seared skin and tissue begin to regenerate. But his injuries exceeded even the ability of the orbalisks to heal him, and nothing happened. The sound of a door opening made her turn her head, glancing up to see Daravid emerging from his hiding place. He looked around at the carnage in the room, then saw Xana crouched over her master. Is he? He left the question hanging in the air. He's alive, she said angrily, rising to her feet. Daravit slowly walked over to her side, cradling Belia's holocron and the data card against his sternum with his good hand. Xana reached out and snatched them away when he drew close. He didn't seem to notice. His eyes transfixed by the charred husk at her feet, that was somehow still alive. Get the lightsabers, she commanded. We're leaving. Daravid had the good sense not to question her orders, but went to gather the weapons of the fallen Jedi, trophies of the Sith Triumph on Tython. Xana stuffed the holocron and data card away in the pockets of her clothing, then took a deep breath to focus her mind. She reached out with the force and lifted Bane's body off the ground, levitating it at waist height. She carried her master this way from the fortress and outside, Daravid following closely behind her. She briefly considered which ship they should use to take them from Tython, then settled on the Loranda. In addition to being larger, it was also equipped with a full medical bay. Open the cargo bay, she ordered, nodding her head in the direction of the vessel. Daravid raced ahead and did as she instructed, while Xana slowly lifted her master up and into the ship. Once aboard, they hooked Bane up to a back-to-pump. 
His injuries probably required complete submersion in a bacta tank for several days, but she didn't have access to those kind of facilities. A bacta pump was the next best thing. It injected a heavy dose of the fluid directly into his veins, circulating it through the body, then filtering it out, only to repeat the process. He's stable, Daravid said, but he won't be for long. When an orbalisk dies, it poisons the host. You read the information on the disk, she said. Get them off him. Even if I did, it wouldn't help, Daravid told her, relaying what he had learned from the disk. It's too late. The orbalisks release toxins into the host's tissue the instant they die. It breaks down the cells at a microscopic level. He'll be dead in a matter of days. You're a criffing healer, she shouted. Help him. I can't, Xana, he said softly. Not here. We don't have the proper equipment or supplies. And even if we did, there's nothing I can do. Once the orbalisk toxin enters the host, there's no way to stop its progress. You can't die yet, Xana thought bitterly, chewing on her lip. There's so much more you have to teach me. Her master's power was still far greater than her own. She had the potential to surpass Bane. He had told her so himself. But right now, he still possessed a strength she could only aspire to. There were secrets he had not yet shared with her, keys to unlocking even greater power than she now possessed. If he died, that knowledge was lost. It was possible she might one day succeed in discovering it on her own, with Bane as her master. Success was assured. But what he still had to teach her went far beyond her ability to harness the energies of the dark side. For the past decade, she had been focused only on learning to control her own power. Over that same time, her master had begun to assemble the pieces that would one day allow the Sith to rise up and rule the galaxy. He'd created a vast network of spies and informants, but Xana had no idea as to its true extent or even how to contact them. He had put into motion a hundred long-range plans to slowly build their strength while weakening the Republic. Yet she was only just now beginning to understand the scope and complexity of his political machinations. Bane was a visionary, able to see far into the future. He understood how to exploit the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the Republic. He knew how to draw the eyes of the Jedi away from the dark side, while at the same time leading them down the first steps of the long road that would end in their complete annihilation. He could manipulate people, organizations, and governments, planting seeds that would lay dormant for years, even decades, before they burst forth. If he died now, everything he had put into place over the last ten years died with him. Xana would have to start at the beginning. She would have to find and train an apprentice, even as she was still learning the full extent of her own abilities. She would be stumbling blindly forward, beset by enemies on all sides. It was almost impossible to imagine she wouldn't make a mistake that would lead to her downfall and the extinction of the Sith. She couldn't allow that to happen. For the sake of their order, she had to keep him alive. 
And though Daravit might not have the knowledge and power to heal her master, she knew someone who did. Someone who had saved his life once before. Make sure he lives, she said to Daravit, an implied threat in her tone. Leaving the medical bay, she marched to the cockpit and sat down behind the controls. She punched in a course for Ambria, but she wasn't heading back to their camp. She was going to see a man called Kaleeb. Though Kaleeb's camp was less than a hundred kilometers from their own on Ambria, Zana had never met him. She knew him only from the tales of her master. Bane had told her the healer was strong in the force, but he didn't draw on it the same way the Sith or Jedi did. Light side and dark side had no meaning for him. His was the power of nature. Her master's words hadn't made sense at the time. But as they came in to land near the tiny, dilapidated shack Kalib called home, she began to understand. There was power in this place. It called to her, but in a strange and unfamiliar language. She could smell it in the air when the cargo doors of their ship opened, and she could feel it beneath her feet when she jumped down from the ship. With each step she took, the ground seemed to vibrate, humming with a sound too quiet to hear, but deep enough that she could feel it in the back of her teeth. Daravit walked behind her, manipulating the controls that guided the Loranda's medical gurney. It floated along beside him, supporting Bane's still unconscious form. As he had been when Xana brought him forth from Belia's stronghold, her master was once again being unceremoniously transported like cargo hovering a meter above the ground. This time, however, he was supported by repulsor lifts rather than the force. This place is amazing, Daravit breathed. I've never felt anything like this before. So raw. Xana recalled that even though he lacked the power of the Jedi or Sith, her cousin was also attuned to the Force. She briefly wondered if it was possible that he shared the same type of talent as Kaleeb, then decided it made no difference why she was here. Four days had passed since they'd left Tython, and Bane had grown steadily weaker. If they didn't find help for him here, her master would die. Judging from her first glance, she didn't hold out much hope for his salvation. As was common on Ambria, they were surrounded on all sides by a desolate, arid wasteland stretching out as far as the eye could see. The only features of the landscape, other than a few scattered rock outcroppings, were Kaleeb's shack and fire pit. The camp appeared to be deserted. The shack was small, a few meters on each side. The walls were angled at 45 degrees, meeting at a peak in the center, making the structure resemble a crudely built pyramid. Where or how Kaleeb had acquired the wood was impossible to say, but it was obvious he hadn't replaced it any time recently. The timber was faded and bleached by years in the sun, and though it wouldn't rot in Ambria's dry climate, hundreds of long vertical cracks had formed in the grain as the moisture was leached away. On the wall facing the fire pit was a small doorway leading into the hut. A tattered blanket hung down across it, fluttering slightly in the desert wind. The fire pit was nothing more than a small circle of round stones, scorched and blackened from years of smoke and flame. A metal stand supported a large iron pot over the center of the circle for cooking, though the pot was empty and the fire was cold. 
Xana remembered from Bane's tale how Kalib had plunged his own hand into the pot when it was filled with boiling soup, scalding himself to prove to her master he feared no pain and couldn't be threatened or intimidated. Ten years ago, the healer had initially refused to heal her master, though ultimately, Bane had compelled him by threatening the life of Kalib's daughter. Xana wondered if, should they find him, he would refuse to help Bane again. Hello? Darvid called out, his voice sounding small in the emptiness all around them. Hello? Xana moved slowly to the ramshackle hut and drew back the blanket in the door. The only thing inside was a small sleeping mat in the corner. She stepped back from the door, peering out at the empty wasteland surrounding the camp to see if there was anywhere else Kalib might have gone. Daravit mimicked her actions, then offered up the only logical conclusion. Nobody's here. It wasn't just Kalib that was missing, Xana had to admit. Where were the medicines the healer would use to cure those who sought his aid? Where were the basic supplies? Food, water, fuel for the fire. He would need to survive. She recalled that Kalib had come to Ambria to escape the war between the Jedi and the Sith. Unfortunately for him, the war had eventually followed him even to this remote world. Yet the healer had maintained a steadfast neutrality during the conflict, refusing to aid followers of either the dark side or the light. Only Bane had successfully compelled him to make an exception to his rule. Maybe with the end of the war, he had renounced his solitary ways and returned to the world of his birth, reintegrating himself into galactic society. It was just one of several possibilities that would explain his disappearance. He could have died. It had been ten years since Bane had visited the camp. And though Kalib couldn't be that old, it was possible something had happened to him in the ensuing decade. Ambria could be a harsh and dangerous world. The healer might have been slain and devoured by the Hussis, the fearsome carnivorous lizards that sometimes emerge from the depths of Lake Nath to feed. The planet had its share of sentient predators, too. The handful of people who still lived in the world survived by picking through the remains of the battles that had once raged over its surface and in the skies above. Finding damaged items and old technology, they could restore and sell off-world. Most of the junkers, as they were called, were simple folk just trying to get by. But a few had become desperate criminals, willing to kill over anything of value, like Kalib's missing collection of medicine and supplies. Or maybe the healer had fallen victim to some disease or affliction even he couldn't cure. If he had died of natural causes, it wouldn't take long until the various desert scavengers carried off the last of his remains, leaving behind no evidence of what had happened. It was clear there was no help to be found here, but there was no point in going anywhere else. Bane had a day at most before the orbalisk toxins reached lethal levels in the tissues of his body. Xana simply stood there, unable to even think what she should do next. And then she remembered another detail from her master's tale. Kalib had tried to conceal his daughter from Bane. Her master had easily discovered her cowering inside the shack. There was no other place to hide in the small camp. At least, there hadn't been ten years ago. Wait here, she said to Daravit, leaving him to watch over Bane on his gurney. She went back into the shack, kicking the sleeping mat aside to reveal a small trap door in the floor. She used the force to fling it open, and was rewarded with the sight of a man staring up at her from a small cellar. His expression wasn't one of fear, 
nor even anger. Not exactly. He looked more like he was weary, as if he knew his discovery was going to lead to a long and tedious exchange. Out, Zana said, stepping back and dropping her hand to the handle of her lightsaber. Without a word, he climbed up the cellar's small ladder until he stood beside her inside the shack. He looked to be in his late forties, a thin man of average height. He had straight black hair that hung down to his shoulders, and his skin was brown and leathery from a decade of exposure to Ambria's burning sun. There was nothing about his appearance to suggest he was a man of power or importance, yet Xana could sense his calm inner strength. Do you know who I am? She asked him. I've known ever since you and your master built your camp on this world, he said quietly. And you know why I'm here. I sensed you coming. That was why I hid. She peeked down into the cellar, noting that it contained a number of small shelves lined with bottles, bags, jars, and pouches that held the medicines and healing compounds he used in his vocation. There were also a number of ration kits piled in one corner, along with a handful of small, square supply containers. When did you build that? She asked, curious. Shortly after my previous encounter with your master, he answered. I feared he would one day come back, and I wanted a place for my daughter to hide. The man suddenly smiled at her, though there was no joy or mirth in the expression. But now my daughter has grown, he told her. She has left this world never to return, and you have no power over me. Are you saying you will not help my master? Zana asked, not even bothering to put a threat into her voice. There is nothing you can do to compel me this time, he replied, and she sensed a deep satisfaction in his tone. She realized he had been preparing for this day for over ten years. The war between the Jedi and Sith is over, Zana told him. My master is no longer a soldier. He is just an ordinary man who needs your help. The man smiled again, flashing his teeth in a feral grin. Your master will never be ordinary, though soon enough, he will be dead. One glanced down at the man's hand, permanently scarred by the burns he had given himself plunging into the boiling soup, made Xana dismiss any ideas of using torture to change his mind, and she knew that any attempt to dominate his mind with the Force would fail. His will was too strong for her to bend it to her needs. I can give you credits. You'll be richer than you can possibly imagine. He waved his hands around at the austere little shack. What use or credits to a man like me? What about your daughter? Zana countered. Think of how much easier her life could be. Even if I wanted to let my child take your blood payment, I could never find a way to get it to her. For her own protection, I insisted she change her name when she left this world. I do not know what she is called now. I do not know where she has gone. Zana chewed her lip, then tried something desperate. If you do not help my master, I will hunt your daughter down. I will find her, torture her, and kill her. She vowed, carefully hitting each word for emphasis. But first, I will make her watch as I torture and kill every other person she cares about. Kalib smirked, amused at her empty threat. Go then. Seek her out and leave me alone. We both know you will never find her. Again, he had her. With no name 
and not even a physical description, it would be impossible to track down one woman who could be on any of a million Republic worlds. Scowling, Xana glanced once more down at his scarred hand. It stood as mute testament to the fact she couldn't break him through raw physical pain, no matter how brutal. But with no other options left, she decided to try anyway. She reached out with the force and picked Kaleeb up. His feet dangled only a few centimeters off the floor, yet his head brushed against the shack's low slanted roof. She began to squeeze, applying pressure directly to his internal organs, slowly crushing them as she inflicted an agonizing pain few beings had ever experienced. She was careful to leave his lungs alone, however, allowing him enough air to breathe and speak. You know how to make this end, she said coldly. Say you will heal my master. He grunted and gasped in pain, but shook his head. Xana, what are you doing? Darvid had come into the shack, curious as to what was taking her so long. Now he stood in the doorway, staring in horror at the scene. Stop it! He shouted at her. You're killing him! Put him down! With a sharp growl of frustration, she released her grip, letting Khalid fall to the floor. Darvid rushed to his side to see if he was okay, but the older man shook his head and waved him away. He rose to his hands and knees, then settled back into his heels, his hands resting on his thighs as he took slow, deep breaths. Darvid turned on her. What did you do that for? He demanded angrily. He refused to help us, she said, her voice more defensive than she meant it to be. I will not release that monster on the galaxy a second time, Kaleeb declared, his teeth still clenched against the lingering effects of Xana's torture. There is nothing you can do to make me save him. Xana dropped to one knee beside him. I can use my powers to conjure up your worst nightmares and bring them to life before your eyes, she whispered. I can drive you mad with fear, shred your sanity and leave you a raving lunatic for the rest of your life. Darovit just stared at her, shocked by her words. Kaleeb only smiled his infuriating smile. If you do, the healer calmly replied, your master will still die. Xana chewed her lip, glaring at him. Then she leapt to her feet and stormed out of the cabin, leaving Darovit and Kaleeb alone. Chapter 23 Fuming, Xana stomped her way across the sand between Kaleeb's shack and the edge of the camp, where her master lay in the hover gurney. She checked the monitor attached to the gurney's side, getting a reading of his vitals. He was still alive, but fading fast. Soon, he would be gone, taking all his knowledge and secrets with him. She was standing over the gurney when Daravit emerged from the shack several minutes later. He crossed the camp to stand beside her, gazing down at Bane. When he goes, he said, offering his cousin words of condolence. At least he'll go peacefully. Peace is a lie! Xana snarled back. It doesn't matter if you die in your sleep or on the battlefield. Dead is still dead! At least he's not feeling any pain, Daravit replied, tossing out another meaningless platitude. If you feel pain... She answered, it means you're still alive. 
Give me pain over peace any day. I never thought I'd hear you say that, Xana. Daravid said sadly, shaking his head. Can't you see what he's made you become? He made me become a Sith, she thought. Out loud, she said. He made me strong. He gave me power. Is that all you care about now, Xana? Power? Through power I gain victory, and through victory my chains are broken. Power doesn't always bring victory, Daravid countered. Even with all the power you have, you couldn't make Kalib help you. Bane would have found a way. She thought bitterly, but didn't say anything. I understand what happened to you, her cousin said, placing a comforting hand on her shoulder. You were just a kid, scared, alone. Bane found you and took you in. I understand your loyalty to him. I understand why you care about him. Xana shook his hand off and turned to stare at him with an expression of wide-eyed disbelief. I'm a Sith. I don't care about anyone but myself. You care about me. Xana didn't reply, refusing to be drawn again into the same argument they'd had on the way to Tython. You don't want to admit it, Daravid pressed, but I know you care about me. And about your master, too. Your actions prove that, no matter what you say. But Kalib's right, you know. Bane's a monster. We can't let him go free. But he doesn't necessarily have to die, he added. What do you mean? Zana said suddenly wary. I spoke with Kalib. He thinks you're a monster too, but he doesn't know you like I do. You're not a monster, Zana, but you'll become one. If you let anger and hate rule your life. Now you sound like the Jedi, she said carefully. Daravid was clearly up to something, but she couldn't figure out what it was. I'm starting to realize they're better than the alternative, he admitted. I know what's going to happen, Xana. If Bane dies, you'll kill Kalib. She hesitated, then nodded. Probably. There was no point in lying. You're balanced on the precipice, her cousin warned her, his voice suddenly urgent and intense. You can still turn back from this life, Xana, but if Bane dies, I know your desire to avenge him will drive you to murder Kalib, and I'm afraid your master's death will push you over the edge. It'll turn you into him. I don't want you to turn into him, he added more softly nodding down at Bane's motionless form on the gurney. I have to save you from yourself. I had to find some way to stop you from killing Kalib. So I convinced him to heal Bane. It's the only way to make you turn away from the teachings of the Sith. That, that makes no sense, Xana said, her mind reeling as she tried to wrap her head around his logic. If Bane lives, he'll never let me abandon my studies. And why would I even want to? She added silently. Before Kalib will help, her cousin explained, you have to dispatch one of the Loranda's message drones. You have to tell the Jedi where we are so they can come and arrest Bane. What? Xana shouted, taking a half step away from him. That's crazy! No, it's not! he said, grabbing her by the arm with his good hand and pulling her back to face him. Please, Xana, just listen to me. If you send that message to the Jedi and hand Bane over to them, 
It will prove you're turning your back on the ways of the Sith. It will show you want to make up for all the pain and suffering you've caused. And it's the only way Kaleeb will agree to heal him. He added a second later, letting go of her arm. You saw what Bane can do, she said. What's to stop him from killing the Jedi when they get here? The obelisk toxin is melting Bane's body from the inside. Even with Kaleeb's help, it will be weeks, maybe months, before he can even get out of bed. So what's to stop me from just taking Bane away as soon as he's healed? Your greatest weapon is secrecy. The Jedi think your order is extinct. They won't waste their time chasing shadows every time someone whispers the word Sith. That's the only reason you've been able to survive so far. But once you send off the message drone, everything changes. They'll know the Sith still exist. They'll have the proof they need to drive them to action. Every Jedi Knight and Jedi Master across a million worlds will be searching for you. The Sith won't be able to hide anymore. Xana knew he was right. It was the very reason Bane had worked so hard to keep their existence nothing more than an unfounded rumor. Besides, Daravid added, Kaleeb won't do anything unless we disable the ship first. If you try to run, you'll have to drag Bane out into the desert on foot. Even if he survived the trip, you wouldn't get very far before the Jedi arrived. Sounds like the healer doesn't trust me. Xana mumbled darkly. You did almost kill him, her cousin pointed out. If I hand him over to the Jedi, she wondered aloud, what happens to me? I don't know, the young man admitted. The Jedi might arrest you too, but I'm hoping they'll recognize your actions as a turning point in your life. Maybe they'll see it as an attempt to make amends. Maybe they'll even take you in, he suggested. I've heard the Jedi believe in the power of redemption. And like I said, it's better than the alternative. What about you? She asked. What will you do? I won't be part of this if you choose to kill Kaleeb and let Bane die, he told her. But I don't think you will. How can you be so sure? I've told you, Xana. We share a bond. I can tell what you're thinking, what you're feeling. You're afraid of being alone? But you're not alone. Not anymore. You'll make the right choice. And when you do, I'll be there for you. She weighed the offer carefully, chewing on her lips so hard her teeth drew blood. If she refused, Bane was dead, and she'd have to continue the Sith Order on her own. Kill Kaleem, find an apprentice, probably kill Daravid too. If she agreed, she had to betray her master to the Jedi, which would mark the end of the Sith and the first step in her long road of redemption and atonement. Bane's time is running out, her cousin prodded. You have to decide. The two paths loomed large before her, alone into the darkness or into the light with Daravid at her side. She spun the problem over and over in her mind until finally, the answer came to her. Tell Khalid, I agree to his demands. Bane opened his eyes slowly. 
His lids felt heavy, weighed down, as if they were lined with metal filings. He could feel them brushing over his pupils, rubbing like sandpaper as he blinked against the harsh light streaming down on him. The brightness made him squint again as he tried to sit up. His body refused to move. Legs, arms, and torso ignored the impulses from his brain to rise. Even his head couldn't budge. There was sensation in his extremities. He could tell he was lying on his back, and he could feel the rough grain of a burlap sheet or a coarsely woven cloth against his skin. But he was paralyzed, unable to move. He let his eyes flicker open once more, and the brightness began to fade as his pupils gradually contracted. He was staring up at a low, sloping ceiling of simple wooden planks. A ray of sunlight beamed through a narrow crack in the wood, shining directly on his face. Groaning, he managed to turn his head to the side so the light no longer hit his eyes. The change of angle also gave him a better view of the room he was in. Small, plain, and strangely familiar. Before he could match the setting to any of his memories, a figure stepped into his line of sight. From the fact that he was staring directly into a pair of worn leather boots, Bane deduced that he was lying on the floor. The figure stood over him for a moment, then crouched down to look him in the eye. The face. Ten years older but unmistakable jogged the Dark Lord's memory. He had lain on this very floor over a decade earlier, on the border between life and death, even as he lay now. Kalib, he tried to say, but the only sound that came out was a soft groan. Like the rest of his body, his lips, tongue, and jaw refused to move. Bane tried to call upon the power of the dark side to grant him strength, but his will was as weak and helpless as the rest of him. He's awake! Kalib called out loudly, never taking his eyes off his patient. From outside, Bane heard the sound of approaching footsteps. He tried to speak again, pouring all his strength into a single word. Kalib. His voice was a faint whisper, but this time the word was clear. The healer didn't bother to respond. Instead, he stood up, leaving Bane staring at his boots once more. Bane heard the dull thud of running footsteps on the sand outside change to the sharp clack of boot heels on the shack's wooden floor. Let me see him. He recognized the voice of his apprentice, and his mind slowly began to reassemble the pieces of what had happened. He remembered the battle with the Jedi on Tython. He remembered unleashing a storm of force lightning at the last of his foes. He remembered the criffing shield the Ithorian master had thrown up around him. After that, all his memories were of unbearable pain. Somehow, the Jedi's barrier had trapped Bane inside the center of the dark side storm. The electricity had enveloped him, millions of volts arcing through his body, cooking his flesh from the inside, and throwing his muscles into an endless series of violent seizures that threatened to rip his body apart. The energy had coursed through the orbalisks embedded in his skin, too. The creatures absorbed the power, hungrily devouring it, until they became so engorged that the soft, pliant flesh of their underbellies had begun to swell squeezed ever tighter against the unyielding chitin of their own exterior shells they'd begun to burrow deeper into Bane. He remembered screaming as thousands of tiny teeth started sawing away at subcutaneous tissue, chewing through muscles, tendons, and even bone. 
but burrowing deeper hadn't stopped the creatures from feasting on the electricity coursing through Bane's frying innards. They'd continued to expand until they had begun to pop, rupturing like overfilled balloons pinched beneath the hard shells. Bane had stayed conscious through the torture of the electricity cooking him alive, and the agony of the teeth burrowing into his flesh. But the indescribable pain from the chemicals released by the exploding orbalisks, dissolving his body on a cellular level, finally caused him to black out, only to wake up here. A pair of boots stepped in beside Kalib's, the smaller feet of a woman, most likely Zana. He's trying to speak, Kalib said from up above Bane's line of sight. He tried to tilt his head again, this time managing to look up toward the pair standing over him. Zana noticed and crouched down to raise his head and shoulders. She slid a makeshift pillow formed by her balled-up cloak underneath his neck to support him. He felt her long, thin fingers on his back as she did so. The contact brought a realization crashing down on Bane. The orbalisks were gone. That was why he had felt the coarse blankets against his bare skin. That was why he could feel Xana's fingers pressing against his flesh. Orbalisks! He managed to gasp. We had to remove them. His apprentice informed him. They were killing you. Bane felt the world going dim again, his body exhausted by the two words he'd spoken. As he lost consciousness, he felt a pang of regret for what he had lost. To Zana's untrained eye, her master looked much stronger when he opened his eyes again two days later. This time, he was able to turn his head slowly from side to side, taking in the surroundings of Kalib's home and the nearby presence of his apprentice. What happened? He asked. The words were faint, his voice still raw and ragged. Kalib healed you, she told him, adjusting the pillows she had taken from the Loranda and placed under his head and shoulders to prop him up. He saved your life. Four days ago, such a statement would have been hard to imagine. Kalib had watched Xana program the message drone and send it off to the Jedi, then warned her there was a strong chance Bane wouldn't survive the treatment. She thought at first it might be a ploy, an excuse Kalib was giving to cover up his actions if he decided to let her master die, or simply killed him. So she'd kept a close eye on the healer during Bane's treatment. Even though she knew there were a hundred ways he could end Bane's life without her having any clue as to what he was doing, Xana hoped her presence might dissuade him from trying anything underhanded. Now she realized how pointless her vigil had been. Kalib was a man of his word. He was burdened and bound by foolish notions like honor. He had promised to help Bane as long as she alerted the Jedi. And since she had held up her end of the bargain, he had made every effort to do the same. Xana had originally suggested moving Bane back to the Loranda's medical bay for the treatments, but Kalib had refused. He'd claimed the powerful energies coursing through the land around his camp gave strength to his medicine. Daravid had agreed, and Xana, having felt the power of the place herself, had relented. The healer had started by forcing a foul-smelling liquid he had concocted in his cooking pot down Bane's throat to counter the effects of the orbalisk toxins. Daravid had warned her that the poison was killing Bane, 
eating away at his body. But it was only when they began to peel away the obelisks, beginning with the charred shells of those that had died, that Xana understood the full scope of how badly her master had suffered. What lay beneath could no longer be called skin. It couldn't even be properly called flesh. A pulpy mass of green and black ichors released by the parasitic organisms, mixed with oozing white pus and bloody red tissue from Bane's own body. Looking at the damage, it was obvious, even to someone like Xana, with no medical experience, that the only thing keeping Bane alive was his power in the Force. His wounds gave off the gangrenous odor of spoiled meat, and it was all she could do not to vomit. The next step involved removing the still-living orbalisks. The key, as Xana had suspected, was electricity. Kalib had brewed a sticky, highly conductive gel over his fire, then used it to coat the exterior shell of each orbalisk. Next, he took a long, thin needle attached to a power cell salvaged from the Loranda and inserted it into a tiny hole at the very tip of the orbalisk's plated skull. The needle pierced the soft body underneath, discharging a powerful electrical jolt to stun the creature. This caused the orbalisk to release a small burst of solvent chemicals that weakened the powerful adhesive the creature used to bond itself to the host. With the adhesive bond weakened, the creature could be manually pried loose. The still-stunned parasites were then tossed into a large, water-filled tank, hooked up to one of the Loranda's power cells, and killed with a final dose of electricity. The process had to be carefully repeated for each individual in the colony that had sprouted over Bane's body. And even with both Daravid and Kalib working on him, the procedure had taken several hours. The flesh beneath the living orbalisks was pale and ragged, with deep weeping sores where it had been constantly chewed and gnawed by the parasite's tiny teeth. The wounds looked minor when compared with the grisly mess beneath the dead shells. Once Bane was cleansed of the infestation, Kalib had rubbed a salve over his entire body and wrapped him head to toe in bandages. The dressings had been changed every four hours for the first two days. The salve reapplied each time. Xana was impressed with Kalib's skill. Bane had been little more than a mass of dead and infected tissue when the healer had begun, and by the time the bandages came off for good, Bane's ravaged body had been reborn. His skin was now a bright pink, unusually supple and extremely sensitive, though over the coming weeks, she'd been told it would slowly return to a more normal color and texture. Kalib saved me, Bane muttered softly. How did you convince him? Xana hesitated, not sure what to tell him. Daravid and Kalib were just outside the door. They could walk in at any moment, but even if they caught her telling Bane about the message drone, why would they care? The deed was done. Her master was still too weak to stand, and by now the Jedi were probably less than a day away from Ambria. We had to tell the Jedi you were here. I sent a message telling them a Sith Lord had killed five Jedi on Tython. I told them you were with Kalib on Ambria, injured and helpless. They're coming for you. Anger flashed through Bane's eyes and he tried to sit up, but only managed to raise his head a few centimeters off the pillow, before falling back. Realizing he was helpless, her master stared at her with accusing eyes. You exposed me, he said. You 
betrayed me. I had to keep you alive, she explained, falling back on the argument she had used to make her final decision. You still have so much to teach me. How can that happen now? He demanded angrily. The Jedi will never allow it. Xana didn't have an answer she could give him. Bane closed his eyes, though whether in defeat or thought she couldn't say. She could just make out Darvid and Kaleeb talking in low voices outside by the fire. Bane's eyes opened a few seconds later, burning with a fierce intensity. Darth Zana, you are my apprentice, the heir to my legacy. You can still claim the destiny that is yours by right. You can still ascend to the rank of Sith Master. He was speaking louder now, his strength slowly returning. Xana wondered if the men outside could hear him. Take your lightsaber and strike me down. Claim my title as your own. Slay the others and flee this place before the Jedi arrive. Seek out a new apprentice. Keep our order alive. Xana shook her head. Kalib had already considered that possibility and effectively eliminated it. Our ship is disabled and the Jedi will be here in a matter of hours. Even if I flee into the desert, they will find me before I can escape this world. I never thought you would fail me so utterly, Bane told her, turning his head away from her in disgust. I never thought you would be the one to destroy the Sith. She didn't say anything in her defense. And a few seconds later, Bane turned back to face her once more, casting his eyes to the lightsaber on her belt. I don't want to live as a prisoner to the Jedi, he said, his voice low, as if he now knew there were others who might overhear. You can end this before they arrive. Xana shook her head. She hadn't gone to all the trouble of saving her master's life just to kill him now. While you live, there is still hope, Bane, she said quietly, worried what Darvid or Kaleeb would think if they heard her words. Yet she had to offer some type of reassurance to her master. The Sith may yet rise again. Bane shook his head, though it took a monumental effort. The Jedi will never allow me to escape. They will sense my power and keep me under the constant guard of a dozen Jedi Knights until the Senate decides to execute me for my crimes. Kill me now and deny them their justice. Xana had spent the past two days by Bane's side, waiting for him to wake again. It had been clear he would live, but she'd wanted to speak with her master to be certain his mind was still intact. She'd wanted proof that all his faculties, his intelligence, his cunning had survived his ordeal. She had it now, ironically expressed in his desire to die. A Sith never surrenders, Master, she told him. And only a fool fights a battle that cannot possibly be won, he answered sharply. The Jedi will be here soon. Act now. Strike me down. She shook her head. Her master tried to rise, his fury giving him the strength to sit halfway up. And then he collapsed back onto the pillow, utterly exhausted. As her master slipped once more into unconsciousness, Xana realized he was right. The Jedi were coming, and if she didn't act now, it would be too late. 
she stood up and drew her lightsaber, knowing the hum of its blade would alert the two men outside. She didn't care. By the time they realized what she was doing, it would be too late. Chapter 24 The Light of Truth, one of the many Jedi cruisers that had been incorporated into the Republic fleet after the Rusan Reformations, landed with a soft thump on Ambria's desolate surface. They're ready for anything. Master Thonatu warned his team as they prepared to disembark. Back before he achieved the rank of Master, the Twi'lek had served as a Jedi Knight in the Army of Light on Rusan. He had been assigned to Farfalla's ship, luckily in time to avoid the effects of the Thought Bomb, but not before he'd had ample opportunity on Rusan to witness firsthand the kind of atrocities the Sith were capable of. He wasn't about to take any chances here. They'd been dispatched in response to a message drone that had arrived on Coruscant a few days before. The anonymous message inside had been cryptically short and somewhat disquieting in its lack of detail. It contained only a set of landing coordinates and four brief lines of text. A Sith Lord still lives. He killed five Jedi on Tython. He is now on Ambria, under the care of a healer named Kalib. He is badly injured and helpless. Less than two weeks ago, Master Farfalla and four companions had hastily taken off from Coruscant, leaving behind word they were heading to Tython in pursuit of a Dark Lord of the Sith. They hadn't been heard from since. The message drone offered a grim explanation of their fate, and it drew an immediate response from the Jedi Council. They'd quickly assembled a team of 14 Jedi, six Masters and eight Jedi Knights, and sent them to Ambria under Thonatu's command to apprehend the man responsible for the massacre of Master Farfalla and his companions. The journey had been made with all possible haste, but now that they were here, they intended to proceed with caution, wary of walking into a trap. The landing coordinates had set them down a few hundred meters from a small wooden hut and a tiny campfire. A cruiser with the name Loranda, emblazoned on its side, was parked nearby. The landing bay doors opened, and Thonatu and the others leapt to the ground, ready to draw their lightsabers at the first sign of trouble. The air around them trembled with a strange and unfamiliar sensation of power, though beneath was the unmistakable taint of the dark side. First and second units, go check out that ship, he said. Third unit explores the camp with me. Nine Jedi rushed off toward the Loranda, while Thonatu and the others approached the camp. What they saw as they drew nearer filled them with revulsion. Someone had been literally chopped to pieces. Eviscerated chunks of human anatomy littered the ground around the campfire. Arms had been hewn off at the shoulder, then sliced again at the elbows and wrist. The same had been done to the lower limbs, dismembered into feet, legs, and thighs. Even the torso had been carved into quarters. The clean, cauterized cuts left no doubt the butcher's weapon of choice had been a lightsaber. Only the head remained whole, placed like a trophy atop an upside-down cooking pot resting on the ground. A human male with long black hair. He appeared to have been 40 or 50 years of age. His features were twisted in a gruesome mask of pain and terror. Thonatu wondered 
how many of the wounds had been inflicted while he was still alive. What kind of madness could make someone do this? One of the others asked, but Master Thonatu had no answer. At a nod from their commander, the Jedi ignited their weapons. They crept toward the small shack, their commander in the lead. As a unit, they stopped when he heard a soft sound coming from inside the building, hard, ragged breaths broken by trembling sobs and whimpers of fear. A tattered blanket hung down across the building's open doorway, obscuring their view. The Twi'lek reached out with the force to try to sense whoever was hiding inside, but something, likely the strange underlying power of the campsite itself, blurred his awareness. I am Master Thonatu of the Jedi, he called out, flicking off his lightsaber's blade. We're here to help you. A scream of incoherent rage erupted from the shack. A young man burst from the doorway, brandishing a golden lightsaber above his head in his left hand. His right hand was nothing but a stump, and there was a crazed gleam in his eye. Now! He shrieked as he charged at them, flailing wildly with his weapon. You'll never get me! No! 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 Master Thonatu ignited his blade as the man fell on him with the fury of madness, his cries turning to mindless, beastly howls. The rest of his team reacted on instinct, leaping to their commander's defense. The battle lasted less than three seconds, the raving young man cut down by a swarm of Jedi lightsabers. When it was over, the Jedi took up defensive positions facing the shack, weapons poised as they braced themselves for another potential attack. For several seconds, nothing happened, and there were no further sounds of life from inside. Motioning for the others to stay back, Thonatu crept forward and pulled aside the blanket covering the doorway. The room beyond was empty except for five lightsaber handles lying beside the door. The Jedi Master stepped inside the small building, his keen mind quickly piecing together what must have happened. He recalled that Farfalla had used a golden blade, just like the one the man had attacked them with. The lightsabers here were trophies, taken from those who had died on Tython by their killer. The man outside was young, but the Jedi were taught that the dark side led to quick and easy power, power enough to kill Farfalla and the others, especially if they'd been led into some type of trap. The Sith had slain the Jedi and claimed their weapons, though he must have suffered grievous injuries in the battle, including the loss of his hand. He had probably tried to call on the power of the dark side to heal himself, but the Jedi Master knew the dark side couldn't heal. It only caused harm. The misguided attempt was likely what damaged the young man's mind. Wounded and half-mad, he had come to Ambria to seek aid from the healer. By the time he arrived at this place, he would have been near death and completely helpless. That's when Kaleeb must have dispatched the message drone to warn the Jedi. A Sith Lord still lives. He killed five Jedi on Tython. He is now on Ambria, under the care of a healer named Kaleeb. He is badly injured and helpless. He must have sensed who and what the young man was as he healed his horrific injuries. But Kaleeb had underestimated the Sith Lord's power and the degenerating state of his madness. Before the Jedi could arrive, the Sith had recovered enough to torture and kill Kaleeb for exposing him. 
the healer's prolonged and visceral death must have further fueled the young man's psychosis, reducing him to the raving creature that had lunged at them from the hut. All the pieces fit. It all made sense. Master, one of the other Jedi said, peeking in through the door. The rest of the camp is deserted. What about the ship, the Loranda? Nobody on board, he reported. It looks like somebody sabotaged her before we got here. Probably Kaleeb, Thonatu realized. He wanted to make sure the Sith couldn't escape. If the young man had found out, that could explain the brutality of Kaleeb's death. It would probably only take two or three days to make the repairs. The Jedi informed him. Leave it for the Junkers, the Twilik said with a shake of his head. There were only two things he wanted to bring back from this accursed place. Collect the healer's remains. We'll give him a proper burial on Coruscant. The man nodded and scurried off to relay his orders. Master Thonato bent over and gathered up the lightsabers of his fallen comrades from Tython, so they could be given a place of honor in the temple. The loss of Farfalla and his companions was a terrible tragedy, as was what had happened here. But at least he could go back to the Jedi Council and tell them with absolute certainty that the last of the Sith Lords had died on Ambria. He exited the small shack and headed back to his ship, knowing that the memories of the gruesome massacre in Ambria would haunt him for the rest of his life. He never thought to examine the small sleeping mat in the corner. He never noticed the trap door built into the floor beneath it. And he never sensed the apprentice and her unconscious master, masked by Sith sorcery, hiding silently in the cellar, just below his feet. Epilogue. It took Xana three days to make the repairs to the Loranda. She'd loaded Ben into the ship and hooked him up to the back-to-pump so he could continue to recuperate while she worked, sedating him to accelerate the healing process. Now that their vessel was ready to leave Ambria, she went in to check on her master one last time. He was still unconscious, lying on his back on the gurney as she had left him. She stepped forward to check his vitals and his eyes flew open, burning with rage. His hand snapped out and seized her wrist, clenching it with the strength of an iron claw. Where are the Jedi? He asked in a fierce whisper, fixing her with a look of pure hatred as he lifted himself up onto one elbow. His grip on her wrist tightened, making her wince. They're gone, she said, trying to stay calm. They've gone back to Coruscant. She could feel Bane's power, whole once more, coursing through his veins. She could feel the heat of his anger, and she knew one wrong word, and he'd snap her neck in two with the Force. Why? he growled. They think they killed the Dark Lord on Ambria, she replied. They think the Sith are extinct. Bane tilted his head to the side, curious. Kalib. I killed him. Your cousin, dead, killed by the Jedi. An unwanted vision of the pitiful creature she had turned Daravid into flashed through her mind. She remembered him huddled in the corner, quivering in terror. He clutched the handle of a lightsaber against his chest, his only defense against the horrors and nightmares he saw crawling toward him from every corner. She swept the memory away with a quick shake of her head. Bane released his hold and lay back in his bed, his anger fading, 
You have done well, Zana, he said, his ever-cunning mind filling in the blanks enough for him to surmise what she had done. She smiled at the compliment. I underestimated you, he continued. Had I known your plans, I would never have asked you to kill me. You still have much to teach me, Zana reminded him. I will continue to study at your feet, Master. I will learn from your wisdom. I will discover your secrets, unlocking them one by one until everything you know, all your knowledge and all your power is mine. And once you are no longer of use to me, I will destroy you. Bane raised an eyebrow at her words, and she could tell he approved. Her ambition was good. It would give her power. Her talents and abilities would continue to grow. In time, she would challenge her master for the right to rule, and only the stronger would survive. It was inevitable. It was the way of the Sith. One day I will surpass you, Xana warned him. And on that day, I will kill you, Lord Bane. But that day is not today. This is Jonathan Davis. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Star Wars, Darth Bane, Rule of Two, a novel of the Old Republic by Drew Carpishan. This program was directed by Kevin Thompson, executive producer, Aaron Blank. Star Wars, Darth Bane, Rule of Two is a production of Lucasfilm Limited, copyright 2008. All rights reserved used under authorization. Music composed by John Williams. Music publishing by Warner Tamerlane Publishing Corporation and Bantha Music. Music Master Production, copyright 2007, Lucasfilm Limited. This has been a Random House audio presentation, all rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.